Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live has written 12 novels. 12 novels. I mean, they're fantastic. Drop City, The Women, and he has a new collection of short stories, one of several collections of uh, short stories. He's, he's also, I like this, he's a distinguished professor of English at the University of Southern California. He's wearing his male plumage today. His book is called Wild Child. It's a collection of short stories, and they're often about the intersection where human and nature, whether it's their own human nature or the natural world, intersect in very curious and sometimes perverse ways. The epigraph is from uh, Henry David Thoreau's Walking. In wildness is the preservation of the world. Please welcome T.C. Boyle to West Coast Live. Good to see you again. Likewise. Oh. First of all, for our radio listeners, he's wearing black tennis shoes, but this beautiful suit, I don't know, is it not maroon, red? Uh, it's Santa Claus red. And by the way, Sedge, we always, when I'm on the show, we're wearing red shoes. We're aficionados of red shoes. I figured yeah, I'd right. go you, you one better oh, yeah, and this go year. The yes, see? Yeah, see? That's right. You usually wear the red shoes. But I didn't come to talk about this. I came to talk about chickens. <laughs> Here's my only chicken story and a true story. Uh, I have a friend. We will call him Bill. He's a writer. He got divorced and moved into a trailer in Northern California in order to write his long science fiction novel. Bill only has one eye. He's had an accident as a child. He wears an eye patch. So he had a chicken, and he really loved the chicken, and the chicken slept in bed with him. And one morning, he woke up, and the chicken was on his chest and pecked his good eye. Has a happy ending, folks. He was only blind for about two weeks. (laughs) And I think there is a moral here, isn't there? It it almost... (laughs) There are several morals. Maybe an immoral, too. I don't know. This almost even sounds like one of your short stories. Well, it might be one. I mean, there's one with a guy with rats. Yes, there is. Uh, uh, this, uh, many of the stories in here are about our uh, animal nature and how nature uh, conflicts with us or, uh, or helps us. And one is the story 1,300 Rats. And in short, uh, in my telling, a guy is a widower. He, uh, he's very distraught. And all his friends say, well, you've got to get a dog or a cat. But no, he's allergic. So he listens to them, and finally he gets a, a python. And he has this python, and what does it eat? It eats rats. So the first time he throws the rat in the, in the cage, he is a, the rat appeals to him. He's like a god. So finally he reaches in, and the rat climbs up his hand and sits on his arm. And he realizes he wants a warm-blooded animal. And the, uh, the snake dies of starvation, and he <laughs> goes to the store and gets a couple more rats. But of course, you know, they do tend to breed. So 1,300 rats. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are mudslides in this book. There are debates over evolution and creationist uh, theory. Creationism is a theory, not actually proof, says the sticker on the biology book. No, I'm, that's not how it was in the story. And, uh, and, and, and the, big, uh, the big story in this is uh, Wild Child, the story of the, the feral child who uh, was, was raised uh, uh, to try to be human in some way. And, and it's, a, it's a brutal story. I mean, and then there's the story of uh, Sin Dolor, uh, about a boy who feels no pain. Yes. I mean, and of course, all this is true. We do have mudslides. And we do, there, there was a story, you may have read about it in the paper about a year ago, a boy in Pakistan. He was a street performer. He has a genetic mutation that does not allow pain to be transmitted to his brain. And of course, 
the scientists want to study this so we could make some genetic manipulation of ourselves and, and avoid pain. So I just meditated on that. What would it be like? And I set the story in Mexico because I'm a little more familiar with the culture there than I am with Pakistan. You live closer there. You've written about it, tortilla curtain and so forth. And But what interests you, it seems, is the ramification it has for people not only who have uh, a condition, but for those who observe it. And you have a character, a doctor, who may be a sadist. He may be an experimenter. He may be a scientist. There's a scene involving scorpions where the doctor is observing the boy but does not intercede. Yeah, I couldn't help it, Sedge. I really couldn't help it. Um, uh, the doctor finds the boy and uh, is interested in him because he doesn't feel pain. And, uh, of course, as a hobby, the doctor collects and keeps scorpions. So, you know, obviously, <laughs> the two are going to come into collision at some point. Um, and, and again, it's just a meditation on pain, what it is, why we have it. Is it valuable to us? Um, oh, a story from my own life. Um, you know, as a kid, we had a gas stove, and then they invented the electric stove. And I uh, went to my friend's house, and I couldn't imagine that this metal thing could be hot. But I found out that it can be because I feel pain. Otherwise, if I were like the kid in Sin Dolor, I would have melted my hand off. And uh, the, the way that this boy processes pain is through the gasps of others at what he is able to tolerate. Uh, and, and, I mean, the physical pain is not there, but clearly he's emotionally hurting. Yeah, the story that I read in the newspaper, again, it's a little thing this, this big, that kid was about 13 or 14. His father used him as a street performer. He would stick skewers through his cheeks and so on and burn himself, uh, you know, and people would throw money in a hat. Um, and this boy, as reported in the paper, jumped off a three-story building. And there were two possibilities as to why he did this. One, to impress his friends because he can't be hurt. And two, because he can feel pain, but it's a different kind of pain. And he was putting an end to himself. And so um, I explored that in a story. So when you, when you sit down to write a story, how do you how do you shape it, sculpt it? Is it? I mean, these these are uh, some of them twenty pages long, some thirty. Wild Child's, I think, over fifty pages long. Uh, there's a shape to them that's much different from a novel. You have to get into the story, into the character, and then out fast. Well, you see me here, you know, as an elegant, distinguished, shy, retiring professor of English. But in my real life, I uh, am busy scurrying around, cleaning up after my wife, dressed in rags, typing in a freezing cold house. And so, uh, thanks, Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> thanks to Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> and and um, I, I write stories in order to get into another place where the reader gets into that unconscious mind for several hours a day. In the old days, when I lived in the Bay Area, uh, hippie days, of course, there's no one here old enough to remember hippies. Uh, <laughs> this, uh, a girl I knew uh, got a new boyfriend. And uh, gee, you know, as I think of it, he, he was a one legged guy. He was a motorcycle guy with one leg because, you know, all motorcycle guys have either. One leg or no legs. And um, he was really into meditating. And he, he really annoyed me one weekend. He kept saying, oh, man, you ought to meditate. And I said to him, you know, thinking about it, I probably do meditate three or four hours a day because I am in some other place. And this is the joy of writing stories. And whether it's a story or a novel doesn't really matter to me. I'm just going someplace. I'd never know where it is or what it will be until I get there. Uh, quick quick version of a, of a longer story. I was in a in an emergency room, there was a motorcyclist who sort of put his bike down and on the freeway, and he was in there being repaired. And I think there had been some alcohol involved in this accident. Anyway, upon x-raying his leg, 
discovered that in his leg was a steel rod from a previous accident, which in this accident had been bent. And they had to not only well, fix the leg, but fix the rod. Sedge, you know, we are both fathers, and we have to advise our children. I have given my children only one piece of advice in their entire lives. There's my son sitting in the back. He can testify. Never get on a motorcycle. And you may recall, I wrote a book called World's End, and the hero of that, Walter Van Brunt, successively loses both feet. It's based on a friend of mine who tested Harleys. When we were about 19, he went down and ripped his right foot off. And we all said, what a shame. And when we were about 29, he went down and ripped his left foot off. And folks, they only give you two. <laughs> so there is the advice for my children. Yes. I, think, I think in the medical room, I mean, sometimes they, they refer to them as donor cycles. And uh, <laughs> there are people who are, uh, you know, this, I'm just reporting the facts, you know, uh, you know as, as that. But it's... Um, it's good. The the uh, the encounters that you you have. I mean, one of the one of the the stories that you have involves uh, evolution and biology and scientists. And there's a very interesting character in there who appears to be. She identifies herself as Christian, and yet she knows more about science than the man who pretends to know about science. Yeah, it's a story called Bulletproof, and I'd been meditating this through the Bush years when the creationists and the right-wing nutballs were taking over the country uh, and trying to squeeze religion into the science agenda. So, you know, I, as you can tell, I stand against this. But the hard, <laughs> the hard thing for me was to meditate on it and present both points of view and come to some sort of conclusion. Because if you think about it, uh, religion and science are equally voodoo. We are living in a mystery. And so uh, the young girl who says at the town meeting, um, uh, Darwinianism is only a theory, uh, and, um, but I know that God exists because Jesus lives in my heart. This is what she says. You know, it'd be easy to make fun of this, but in fact, and the way the story turned out is exactly like that. Both the doubters and the believers still have to live in nature and see what a miracle nature can provide. And it's a beautiful story involving snakes, which sort of resonates with the Garden of Eden, and, and plus a certain kind of fascination with the squirminess of life that you enjoy. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this, th if there's a through line, you know, I, I don't write stories that are uh, allied in any way. I just write whatever I feel like at any given moment. But in this one, because of Wild Child and the epigraph, um, so many of the stories have to do with uh, a nature, our being in nature, and of course creatures. And uh, you mentioned the title story about the feral child in France. This uh, Truffaut had made this movie, uh, L'Enfant Sauvage, you may have seen. And I did see it in the 70s. And I haven't seen it since. And I don't really want to because I wrote my own version of the true story of Victor Aveyron, who was found captured when he was 11 or 12 in the woods in south of France. He had lived feral without family uh, language or association with human beings. He had a, uh, a scar across his throat. So the presumption is he was like um, the child of Hansel and Gretel or some of these kids in the, in the, in the, in the folk tales, um, the wicked stepmother or someone took Or like Oedipus being exposed on the hillside yeah. to not fulfill a curse. Yes, yes, perhaps. But, you know, maybe they were just starving to death. Maybe he had problems. But at any rate, he was unable to acquire language even though uh, he went through years of, of, of training at the Institute for the, the Deaf Mutes in Paris. And this must also resonate for you as a writer whose way of being in the world is through language. Oh, yeah, of course. And it also asks the question of what is the thing that humanizes us most of all? Uh, how do you know who you are? 
and it may well be our acquisition of language. And you know, it's uh, Noam Chomsky had had posited that you can't really acquire language except in a given period of your life, um, three to four, or whatever it is, um, just as you grow into your teenage years and you grow a second set of teeth and so on. And it's generally accepted as being true now. And certainly, Victor of Aveyron is a um, an example. When you uh, these stor- short stories have appeared in different publications, ranging from the New Yorker uh, to McSweeney's and so forth. How are these placed? I mean, some of them have been in the Atlantic. Do you do you want to be in the New Yorker, first of all? Do they still have right of first refusal for you? And then these have shown up in other publications, and ultimately the book, you know? I mean... <laughs> well, well, uh, yeah. well, well, well. Maybe this is an impolitic question to it's ask. Okay. It's okay. Um, I, you know, I began as a short story writer, and I published my own stories and sent them to the editors. I knew the editors personally. Now, of course, at my distinguished age, you know, I'm going to be 87 on my next birthday. Um, <laughs> You look darn good. I know, I know. I'm keeping in shape. Uh, anyway, uh, you know I'm sort of at the top of the food chain now, so I have close associations <laughs> with the editors and with my agent, and so a given story might um, appeal to a given editor, and so we suss that out and send it out, and I've been fortunate in that the stories are acquired. I'm writing stories now. Some of you may have seen one that you would love, by the way, um, in uh, January Harper's My Pain is Worse Than Your Pain. And it's a story set up on the mountains where I spend a lot of time in the Sierras um, about a guy who was a little bit of a peeping Tom. And then we see what the result is. And I also had a story, just some of you may have seen in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago, called A Death in Kichewank, a memory story of my growing up in New York. So I'm, I'm always... Where, where, do you, where do you hide out in the Sierra? Uh, it's a place that I discovered when I first moved to L.A. Uh, uh, many years ago to teach at USC. Uh, it's um, east of Porterville, up in the Squire National Forest. It's a little, tiny little community. And I know everybody there, and I love to be there because I can get away from everything, do my work in the daytime, and go out in the woods. You go do the J.D. Salinger thing up there. They know you're in the coffee shop, but nobody else will. Well, not exactly, no. I think J.D. and I have a different approach <laughs> to uh, literature <laughs> as entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how often has your son traveled with you on your book tours? Uh, all three kids have gone with me uh, many times. After I saw you last year, by the way, I went uh, on the women tour. I went directly to Germany for two weeks, and I brought my daughter with me, which was fun. The second time she'd gone. Um, Spencer and his girlfriend Alex, who are back here, they happened. To, they just graduated from college, and they were traveling in Europe, so they got to stay for a few days. Um, he just happens to be here visiting her. She's in law school here, up in the Bay Area. And so. Is there any material that you find? I mean, you, some of these stories you find in literature, some you find in the news. Is there, are there stories that you think about in traveling with your children in these different circumstances out of the home that trigger your imagination? Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, yeah I wrote a story some years ago called Acades McNeil. My children were still fairly young. And it, there's a novelist in it, and he's this egomaniacal lunatic who's constantly running around the country giving shows, and he's got his biographer with him and his third wife, and et cetera. And the poor son, his poor son has just gone to an obscure little college because he hates his father. He wants to get away from him. And his father comes with his whole entourage to give a reading at the college. And um, I was just kind of wondering what it might be like in the worst possible scenario for my children if I wasn't a very good dad and didn't behave myself. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> there you go. You, ex- you explore these extremes of, of, of human nature. There was a, a, a description in here of a, of a mudslide, which it seems like you clearly have um, experienced in, in some way. 
And the character that you have getting caught up in this mudslide is somebody trying to deliver a liver on a deadline. Yeah, this story is called La Conchita, and as you all know, I'm sure, uh, during our last El Nino a few years back, uh, the little town of La Conchita, which is about 15 miles south of where I live in Santa Barbara, uh, is in a very unstable hillside, and there have been mudslides there. And in the most current one, people were killed. And it was quite uh, horrific uh, because this one woman had just gone out to the little store. The mountain fell. Her husband and child were completely buried, the house crushed, etc. So my narrator in this story is a courier. He's a road warrior, like me. He has to be out on the road, burning by past everybody. He doesn't care about anything. And he is a courier who delivers many sorts of things. And this particular day, he's delivering a liver because the Santa Barbara airport is closed down from the, the flooding. And he is stopped by the mudslide. And at that point, he has to decide what to do in life. Is he going to deliver a piece of somebody, or is he going to actually try to save a whole person? The, uh, the stories uh, are filled with T.C. Boyle's usual pleasure in language. Uh, maybe it's the fault of the term itself, mudslide. It sounded innocuous, almost cozy, as if it might be one of the new attractions at Magic Mountain. Or vaguely sexy, like the mud wrestling that was all the rage when I was in high school and too young to get in the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, well. <laughs> Human Nature, Wild Child and Other Stories, T.C. Boyle. Viking published it as well they should. Thank you very much. Who's your tailor, by the way? Who's your tailor? This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.